This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction. The information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined once again by fellow IS team member, Dr. Patrick Maloney. And today we're going to discuss all of the updates surrounding the pandemic since the last time that uh, Patrick was on the podcast. Anyway, Pat, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been a number of months since we've had you on the podcast or you've done your own podcast with updates surrounding the pandemic. And a lot has happened. So things have moved quickly. The vaccines have rolled out. Uh, we have new variants. We're talking about additional boosters now, you know, having to social distance, mask up once again. There's various hotspots because of vaccine hesitancy. Anyway, there's a lot to cover. So anyway, where would you like to start? Whew, I don't know. That's a big question. Uh, like you were saying, um, like you were just saying, uh, I mean, a lot, a lot has happened and the, the COVID situation continues to evolve. I mean, even, even on a really day-to-day -day basis um, in terms of our response and um, evolving very quickly in terms of the emergence of new variants and um, new responses to those variants. Um, so I suppose we should probably just start by um, broadly discussing the, the Delta variant and the, and the implications it's had on public health practice and also policy and um, just in general how we are, um, how we're responding to the pandemic is at the community level. Um, so I think that everybody knows at this point that the, the Delta variant is the most severe, the most transmissible and the most fatal um, of all the variants that have yet to emerge. And um, that's, that's something to be expected. So when we're seeing these viral evolutions, we're seeing, we're seeing changes that, you know, in terms of like human evolution would take millions of years to emerge, right? But at the, at the microbial level, at the viral level, these changes, they happen very, very quickly. And really it happens when the viruses are replicating themselves. Sometimes they get these small errors or um, small mutations and those sort of propagate uh, based on natural selection. So the virus, the viruses, the, the various um, variants of, of the virus as they are being transmitted within communities, the sort of best version of the virus is going to emerge as the dominant strain. 
And that's really what we're seeing here. We've seen a ton of variants up until, up until this point, and there are probably variants that have occurred that we haven't observed because they've not been the most effective or efficient form of the virus. And when I say best form, that's not like, oh, best for us. No, it's best for the, the virus in terms of transmissibility, uh, infectivity, and basically what's going to help that virus survive in the population. So basically what we've seen evolve is, like I've said, this incredibly infective, incredibly severe, and incredibly deadly version of the virus. And what we've seen is this has come to dominate all of the other transmission of viruses. It's really becoming the dominant strain at this point of virus in the population. And um, the, the corresponding effect, unfortunately, has been that we've that we're now we're now in the midst of probably what we would call a, a third wave. I mean, the United States is seeing over 125,000 cases a day on average. Um, and that's about you know, half of what our peak was uh, back last year. And the, the, also what we've observed is we've seen like a corresponding decrease in the uptake of vaccination. So we peaked in vaccination around April. And then since then, the vaccination uptake rates have, have really steadily declined. Um, and in April, as you know, that's when everybody who wanted to get a vaccine could get a vaccine. So at this point, we're really trying to pinpoint those individuals who haven't got vaccinated and improve vaccine uptake amongst those individuals. Because that's, that's really the name of the game at this point is attaining high levels of vaccination coverage in the population. Because even though, as I'm sure we'll probably discuss, these vaccines seem to be a little bit less effective at preventing infection, they're still incredibly effective at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So if the name of the game is to prevent those serious consequences, as we believe it is, then the vaccine is still going to be our best and most effective tool to, to do that. Um, so that's sort of like a microcosm of, you know, where we're at in terms of the, the Delta variant. And, re and real quick there, what you just said about the vaccine, because I've seen people like critics of the vaccine program come out and say, well, it is impossible to prevent uh, infection with these vaccines. Um, because they've been, you know, they're criticizing the breakthrough cases and the fact that the vaccines aren't actually stopping infection transmission, which isn't entirely true because it does create a buffer of infection transmission. But it's really, really important to highlight at this point, like you just said, that the all of the data indicates that those individuals who are vaccinated and then they still contract COVID, uh, they don't die from it or they don't get serious, um, seriously ill from it. So they may show some symptoms, but they're not going to end up in the hospital or even end up dead from it. And right now, what we're seeing is the hospitals are filling up with unvaccinated individuals. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, what we, we're really losing the PR battle um, in terms of vaccination and just in general, um, in terms of, you know, the COVID response. And it's, it's really been pretty, pretty unfortunate to see, but we need to shift the narrative from prevention of infections to prevention of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And it's difficult to do, right? I mean, it's difficult for the average person to conceptualize like, hey, I may still get infected, but even if I do, I'm not gonna have the severe consequences and the severe fallout. Because, I mean, we've been conditioned to believe that, you know, vaccines are going to prevent 
disease. And, you know, that's generally what they do. And that's still what this vaccine does to an incredible degree. And um, I, I mean, we're always going to see breakthrough cases, right? We're always going to see spillover cases because the vaccines, they're never going to be 100% effective, you know, when, 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 you know, actually administered in the population. So those spillover cases and those breakthrough cases are, are to be expected. Um, and the reason why we're seeing so many of them is because COVID is so prevalent in the population. So when you have this high degree of prevalence and high degree of community transmission, you're coming in contact with the virus more frequently. And the more you come in contact with the virus, the greater your chances are of contracting it. And that's mitigated by the vaccine, but it's not eliminated by it. So until we reduce community transmission, we're not going to see those effectiveness numbers bump up to as high as they could potentially be. But yeah, I, I really think that shifting the narrative away from infections, because if we can, you know, if we can have individuals with breakthrough infections or spillover infections still be experiencing very mild illness or no symptoms at all, I mean, that's still a win. Because as you were alluding to before, preventing hospitalizations is really what we need to do and what we need to shift our focus to. So there's a number of states right now that are either completely maxed out such as Alabama. Alabama does not have a single critical care bed open right now. Um, to states like Texas, which have under a thousand critical care beds to service 20, 29 million people. So, I mean, it's, it's when, we, when we don't have those critical care beds available, I mean, the, the beds itself isn't so important because um, you can still set up like external facilities, you can create you know, additional capacity and all of those sorts of things, you can add more beds and whatnot. But what we're really talking about is the ability to staff those beds. So have nurses and doctors and physicians and, you know, everybody else who could potentially be, you know, play a part in, um, in healthcare delivery service. Like those are the individuals that, you know, are getting stretched to capacity. Like you're not gonna have enough doctors and nurses to, to facilitate the, the coverage of all those individuals. So. The, the hospital system really functions like a well-oiled machine, right? You have your critical care beds, but those get populated by the individuals who come in from the ER, and the ER gets populated from individuals who are coming in in ambulances. So what you're doing basically is you're creating this big backlog. So the critical care beds get full, so then the emergency room gets full, and then the ambulances who are bringing individuals in have to wait in big long lines to get people ad admitted to the hospital. So what the consequence is, is people who need care aren't getting care in a timely manner. So we often talk about, you know, the implications of ICUs being full in terms of not being able to take more COVID patients, but it also means that you're not going to be able to take any patients. So if somebody were to have a stroke or somebody was in a, somebody was in an automobile accident or something along those lines, when you're trying to bring those individuals in, there's no space for them. So the unintended consequence of having a full ER is that you're having people who have non-COVID related issues who are dying in you know, excess numbers. And this can be compounded with, um, with individuals who have regularly scheduled operations like uh, cancer removal or um, appendicitis or like any of these other standard surgeries, their hospitals simply don't have the capacity to address those. So those are going untreated and individuals are dying of that as well. And that's not to mention that we don't have the capacity to deal with all the COVID cases that are incoming. So it there's the contribution to, um, to deaths from COVID. 
But all through the, and I can actually show this to you. Um, let me share my screen because it's kind of interesting. Um, so what we're, what we're seeing here, um, so let me preface this by saying that the, the states that are having the most trouble with hospitalizations are also the states that are having these big bumps in cases. So the darker the blue is here, the more intimate cases that you're seeing in each of these, each of these states. So you can see in the Southeast, it is really bad in terms of the number of new cases that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And just to go ahead and show you over here, this is the, this is, this uh, map is showing the proportion of people who are vaccinated. So darker blue here means that you have a higher proportion of people who are vaccinated. So this sort of, sort of goes to underline the fact that you have, in states that have high vaccination rates, you are seeing a incredible decrease in the incident cases of COVID. So look up here in the Northeast, like very, very dark blue, have the highest, um, the highest proportion of vaccinated people in the country. And then you come over here and you have this very light blue green color, which is just demonstrating that the lowest incidence of uh, COVID cases is occurring in the Northeast. And then you look over here in the Southeast where the, you have a high number of incident cases. And then you look over here in the Southeast and you have the lowest proportion of vaccinated individuals. So take this as you will, but to me, this indicates that the states that have the highest proportion of vaccination are experiencing the lowest incidence of COVID cases. And as a result are having better results. Their ICUs aren't filled up, their hospitals aren't maxed out to capacity and they're gonna have better outcomes, lower mortality rates, and um, are, you know, are, are going to have um, fewer mitigation practices that need to be implemented to control COVID. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I suppose that that's not at all surprising uh, because we know that the vaccine works uh, from mm -hmm. a, you know, to prevent transmission and to prevent, um, to prevent severe disease and to prevent death. Uh, mm -hmm. So to see that the areas of the country that had the highest vaccination rates then had the lowest amount of COVID cases isn't, isn't surprising at all. And I suppose it's a, a, nice, a nice little demonstration of the fact that, hey, look, we have some data and the vaccines are, are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And beyond, yeah. and beyond, beyond that graphic, I mean, there's, there's a ton of data out there that says the vaccines are doing precisely what they're supposed to do, what they were designed for and that they work. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it's, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say there's other, you know, sort of confounding factors too. The states that have the highest vaccination rates also do the best with informing the public um, with, you know, more accurate information regarding COVID. So there are, there are also states that tend to take the pandemic um, more seriously and more strictly adhere to mass mandates, um, implementation of lockdowns and all those sorts of things. So they have those factors that are also contributing to to lower rates in general, um, because vaccination is just really one component of a very much larger response to, to the COVID pandemic, but it is still the singular best tool that we have to prevent illness and to prevent deaths. No, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the social dis distancing and the mask mandates, like you mentioned, and, you know, I guess we could segue a little bit into how, like you said, communicating certain states, the, uh, 
the tide of misinformation that has accompanied the pandemic and that continues to plague the pandemic. And we can see certain areas of the country that perhaps are a little bit more prone to the spreading of misinformation uh, that this has caused lower vaccination rates or they don't wear masks, don't social distance, things of that nature. So, yeah. <clears throat> really the problem is, yeah, it, it is really unfortunate. And the, the problem is, is that the, the pandemic has been heavily politicized and it's not something that, that should be politicized. I mean, our public health and our public safety is something that should be a, a, unif a unifying principle. I mean, um, you saw, you know, in previous times during during these these you know massive generational events that you know have have far-reaching implications and consequences, such as you know like World War One and and World War Two and you know even Spanish influenza or 9/11. Um, you just saw this massive unification of people of all walks of life, different political parties, different races, different beliefs, different religions, really coming together and unifying as, as Americans. Um, and we just haven't really seen that during this, this pandemic. I mean, this is undoubtedly a, undoubtedly a generational event that has far reaching implications and consequences economically, politically, um, and from a, from a public health standpoint. I mean, we've had tens of millions of infections and we have over 600,000 deaths that we know of. I mean, that's, that's a hugely consequential event. I mean, if you take into account, like if you look at the number of combat deaths in World War II, for example, we've far exceeded that at this point. We've exceeded the total number of combat deaths in the Civil War, which is the bloodiest, um, bloodiest war in American history. And yet, we still have this huge divisiveness in, in our population. And like I said, I think that that's a result of the politicization of the, uh, of the pandemic. And um, I don't really blame the, the public for this, but we do have certain political officials um, who are you know, supposed to be trusted individuals and trusted members of society, but instead of you know, preaching a message of unification and patriotism are really using the pandemic, pandemic to, to sow division in the population. And that's taken place in the form of, you know, misinformation, um, where, where information is, is heavily politicized, really cut out, parsed out to serve um, preconceived notions or narratives. And um, <clears throat> that's not even taking into account the out and out just lies that, that have been told by political officials, by members in the news media, and so on and so forth. But I mean, the, the singular message right now should be, it is your patriotic duty as an American and as a human being, a member of a global society to, to get this vaccine, to, to get vaccinated. And that's not the message. The message now is, um, you know, one of, you know, doubt and derision and divisiveness. And it's really been, been unfortunate to, to see. And ruthless individualism. Mm. That, <clears throat> that is something I think is really important to highlight too, such as like I, this pandemic is no longer convenient for me to do any of these things. I don't want to wear a mask. You know, I don't want to vaccinate my body, my choice. So I don't need to help my community. And uh, it's really unfortunate. It's really, really unfortunate because this is a community sort of event 
you know, larger than that countrywide global, global. <laughs> so it's not just, you know, the United States, it's global. And, you know, we all need to come together on this, like you said, uh, and the messaging is just not there that is being spread by certain individuals. And it's really, really unfortunate to watch how the pandemic has been politicized. And what I think irritates me the most is that it was almost immediately politicized, almost immediately. Like it became a thing and then it was immediately politicized and it just hasn't gone away. The messaging hasn't really changed. I do know that, so uh, Fox News was, an, was the news station that was promoting a lot of doubt surrounding the pandemic in the beginning and has done so surrounding any of the social distancing, the mask mandates, having to do lockdowns, things of that nature for roughly an entire, a little over uh, an entire year. And then they recently changed their messaging um, towards the beginning of summer uh, because now we're seeing a third wave of COVID cases due to Delta. And it's particularly, as we noted earlier, in the unvaccinated. Uh, and it, it is just so unfortunate. It, it's really, really sad to see because people are literally dying because they're listening to this information. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's really tough uh, because it, I think there's been a breakdown at, at a lot of levels. Um, it, 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 it multiple levels of, of government and media and even, you know, in the scientific community because the scientific community isn't, you know, innocent in, in this whole thing either. So, I, I mean, the, the prevailing paradigm really is that the scientific community goes out and they do research, generate reports, generate evidence, and obtain all the information that's necessary to inform the public and to inform public policy. And then that information is distilled to the public by the media who, you know, are supposed to be, you know, reliable arbiters of the information and inform the public. And then also policymakers are supposed to take that information and then use it to make informed arguments and inform policies that you know reflect the data and are beneficial to the members of their communities and their country but there's there's really been a a, a breakdown in in that paradigm where now you know scientists are are still producing information still producing evidence and still producing data but the passage to to the media and to the um, the public policy folks or the politicians, that's, that's really broken down because a lot of media organizations can't be trusted to reliably report information. And this isn't just, this isn't just Fox News, like this is, this is across the board media outlets. So I would say Fox News is a little bit more insidious in their intentions because um, I think that Fox News is really serving as an um, outlet for for certain political individuals to, to spread propaganda and misinformation and even down and out lies where I think that other organizations are having a difficult time dealing with the complexities and the nuances of, of data. And I think that that falls on us as the scientific community because we're not reaching out to the degree that we need to to media organizations and participating in the dissemination of information. Um, so the scientists really need to become more active in terms of dissemination of information and talking directly to the public. The problem is when they do, they're, meet with, they're met with such derision and hate. Like I, you only need to look at, you know, Dr. Fauci, who is, you know, a, 
incredibly dedicated public service or, or public servant. His credentials can't be doubted. I mean, he's worked across multiple presidents of different political affiliations, and he's just been this, you know, unbiased, unpolitical um, disseminator of information, but he's been so demonized by individuals who disagree with the science or don't disagree with, but are you trying to use trying to use the pandemic for political purposes? And then the other sort of dynamic is scientists who are who are informing public policy. When you have when you have these politicians who are legislating based on you know what's going to be politically expedient for them or politically beneficial and what's going to you know generate more power for themselves and for their political party, then you know they they simply they simply aren't holding up their end of that bargain. They're not, you know, holding up their end of that prevailing paradigm. So I think that, you know, part of the solution is certainly getting more scientists out there, getting them directly disseminating information to the public, you know, having us, you know, scientists, you know, sort of step down from our ivory towers where we just, you know, conduct our research and sort of are like these impartial arbiters of information stepping away from that and realizing that, you know, scientists have to play a role of, of advocacy at this point. They need to not only generate data, but they need to go out there and they need to explain it and they need to advocate for it. So I think that would probably improve the situation, but there's there's mistakes that have been made at every at every level, at the scientific level, at the policy level and at the uh, and at the media level. So yeah. no, yeah, and that's that's absolutely important to highlight. However, I do think that it's really, really important to admit that there is a distinct difference between, you know, innocent mistakes versus mm -hmm. spreading deliberate lies or disinformation to the public for personal gain. And yeah. uh, they are drastically different. And both of them are, are uh, you know, not good for the progress of the pandemic or building trust between the public and the scientific community. But one of them is just so insidious, as you said earlier. Um, and it's not just, uh, you know, we were pointing fingers at Fox News because they were guilty of doing this, but we also have some nefarious actors within like the holistic health community or the anti-vaccine movement who have just gigantic followings. And they have been instrumental through social media channels of spreading just an incredible amount of disinformation. And then this just yeah. gets spreads around between people. And these people, so these are, these are essentially like false information or disinformation super spreaders. And uh, there was a study done that was written about in towards the beginning of summer talking about the disinformation dozen where it's like 12, 12 actors in the social media space where they just have a far reach and the audience is massive and that they've just been really, really instrumental in spreading just an incredible amount of misinformation. Yeah. And th these people are victims. I mean, so, you know, all of the anger, you know, we can, you know, people, people get upset, you know, they start throwing around, you know, insults, pejoratives, things of that nature uh, to, to one another. And really who we need to be the most upset with is the people who are deliberately lying to large audiences surrounding the pandemic when they, when they know better. They have the information, but then they still spread lies for personal gain. Uh, and then everyone else spreading this misinformation around social media or talking to their friends and family in their communities. 
I mean, they're just victims. And these victims then end up not taking the recommendations from the scientific community about the social distancing, the masking, you know, getting vaccinated. And, you know, then they end up contracting COVID and maybe dying from it or, you know, contracting long-term COVID or having long-term complications and their lives are severely impacted from it. So I think that's just really important to highlight is that there's, there's a, a clear distinction between the two camps and there's obviously, you know, mistakes that have been made on all levels, like you said, I agree categorically, but I am so frustrated with the individuals who can just go out there and lie to the general public and do so with impunity. I mean, so, like there, uh, some medical professionals now are, you know, have their licenses potentially on the line, depending on the state that you're in. But in general, these people, for example, like the, the Fox News talking heads have been able to just essentially go out there and lie with impunity. The uh, individuals, the disinformation doesn't or whatever, they haven't had any sort of legal prosecution um, against them that I know of. They haven't been, some of them have been deplatformed, but not, uh, not all of them. Then they start using code words, things of that nature where, you know, they don't refer to the COVID-19 vaccine as the COVID-19 vaccine, but they call it something else. And they start using code words, things of this nature. It, it's just mind boggling. Like I'm all first amendment, like free speech, things of that nature. But when you're out there deliberately lying to the public for personal gain, and it is killing people essentially, uh, I just don't know how you continue to do that with impunity and how society should why should why should uh, society tolerate that? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's interesting. Like you can really, and studies have been done to show this, but you can really chart the spread of information, misinformation, like the spread of an infectious disease. Like it actually very you know accurately mirrors like the the spread of COVID, for example. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, um, I mean, I'm not you know, a policy person or anything like that. So I just, uh, I don't know, you know, what we can, what we can really do about those sorts of things. But I do know that we, we as a, as a country definitely need to change how we adapt to, to these external, these external threats. And, you know, I think misinformation is certainly one of them, but I think that other threats, you know, emerge very quickly, like COVID, for example, where, you know, our government is really designed to, to be reflective and, you know, we're generally pretty slow and build consensus. I mean, that's, that's sort of how our, how our government works. I mean, you can't do anything in the Senate without 60 votes, for example, you know. Um, so it's, uh, it's incredibly difficult to pass new legislation to deal with these, with these emerging threats. And I think that misinformation is certainly one of them. I think that we're facing um, I think that we're facing incredible challenges due to, due to climate change. I think that um, we're facing incredible challenges due to COVID-19. And um, I, I just think that our, our government isn't well suited to, to, deal with those, to deal with those challenges because things work so incredibly slowly. And you know, add to that that I don't think the country's ever been more politically divided than it is than it is right now. And um, I think that that's actually probably due to one of those, you know, emerging threats that we see. It's that, you know, there are, 
when you're dealing with social media and technology, we're living in, you know, the equivalent of the wild, wild west, right? I mean, there's no, there's no uniform legislation that, um, that's been enacted and put into law to regulate these, these sort of things. And um, yeah, I think that we need to, you know, we need to drastically change the way that we approach those from a governmental level, but also from, from, you know, uh, from a personal level. I mean, it, um, I think that we need to change the way in which we consume information. Um, we've been so conditioned at this point to, to get all of our information from one minute videos on TikTok or 140 character tweets on Twitter. And um, when you do that and you're only hitting the headlines, you lose all ability to, to get at the nuances of arguments or data or information or you know, any of these, any of these, you know big, bold, and in-depth concepts are, you know, distilled into, you know, a minute video or 140 characters, you just can't possibly hope to understand anything. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a reflection of, you know, our limited attention span. I mean, we need to constantly be stimulated and constantly, you know, um, constantly be, be, be engaged. And I, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of that has been uh, been designed or predicated on, on eliciting an emotional response from us. And I mean, we've seen that, you know, in the form of headlines, you know, previously when we were working on newspapers, now we see it and, you know, headlines on television. And now we see it in tweets and now we see it in TikToks and all these sorts of things. And it's all designed to provoke an emotional response, which is sort of antithetical to how we want to disseminate information, right? Because we don't want to perceive information emotionally. We want to be able to detach ourselves from it and be impartial and then arrive at conclusions. But the way in which we're disseminating information is, like I said, antithetical to the way we should be perceiving information. So it makes it, um, yeah, it makes it very, very difficult to, to, <laughs> to, you know, accurately be able to get out all the salient points that people need to make to, or that people need to understand to make informed decisions. Yeah, the uh, the world is a remarkably complex place, and right mm -hmm. now, with the primary sources of information consumption coming from social media, uh, more and more people are getting their news from that. And like you said, it's just you know the one minute TikTok videos, the you know the couple sentences in a tweet, um, a short Facebook post, or something of that nature, and you're distilling something that is remarkably complex into something that is just a shell of what it original, what, what it should be. Uh, and, no. you know, it feeds into people's confirmation bias, then they're gonna engage in like black and white thinking where it's just very polarizing, uh, something of that nature where you're not just, you're just not going to get the full value of the situation that you really should be. So it is unfortunate. And I don't think it's going away. You know, I think that, you know, we've talked, you know, we had this conversation uh, when we did our outrage culture panel podcast, you know, social media definitely has value. Absolutely. Uh, through connecting people and uh, making sure that people are informed, but you just, we have to do a better job. Something, something has to be done at some point. And, yeah, I'm, and I, I'm hoping that we don't have to wait too long. And, you know, you were talking about how, you know, essentially, you know, our government is set up, it's a dinosaur. It's set up to move very, very slowly, which is good and bad. Mm -hmm. However, when you're talking about threats that move on exponential curves and you really need to expedite the process, 
in order to respond adequately, it really makes it hard. It really makes it hard to mount a adequate response when you know people are used to thinking linearly or maybe slower than that because like you said, you know, Congress moves very slow, but then you have an exponential threat. So, you know, we had the COVID, the COVID pandemic, which moved on an exponential curve. And then we have global warming. This is the next major exponential curve that we're gonna have to uh, be dealing with. We very soon here, uh, we should have dealt with it decades ago, but it is moving oh. on an exponential curve. Everything that uh, so, we're looking yeah. at now is going to be small potatoes when it comes to us dealing with um, with global climate change. Um, it is it is undoubtedly the number one threat to national security, to public health, to our way of life. And um, if we don't take steps to address it, I mean, we are we are going to be in some significant trouble. But I think that I think that yeah, I mean, all those points are are so great. But it also, you know, it. Uh, I think that I think that we suffer, you know, as a as a society from you know an unwillingness to to process new information and to change our opinions. It seems like it seems like a form of weakness nowadays to admit that you don't know something or that you're not an expert on something. And it also is seen as a form of weakness to change, you know, your opinion as, as new evidence emerges. So what happens is people just get so entrenched in their initial uninformed opinions, and as new evidence emerges, there's nothing that can can change people or shake them out of, you know, their their stance. And that's particularly perilous when we talk about um, opinions at the governmental level. So opinions of our politicians. So I mean, everything that we experience as a society, all of the bad things, multiply them to, you know, the magnitude of 10. And that's what you're going to have at the political level. So when you have the, this, this fear of, of being, being perceived as ignorant to a situation, when you have this fear of changing your position, when you have this, you know, drive and lust for power, all of that combines to being, you know, a, a very um ineffectual sort of uh governor or governor like form of governance and it's just it's difficult especially when we've got you know very you know when we've got when we've got individuals who don't necessarily know much about the issues right but they won't take steps to become informed so i mean uh it's like it's the mic a microcosm that I'm thinking of is that when Zuckerberg came and testified before Congress and yeah. the and the senators and the congressmen who were you know interviewing Zuckerberg had zero idea of like what of how Facebook worked, of how mobile tracking worked, of how you know their information and data were used. It were it it was just completely eye-opening to me that the people who are making our laws have no understanding of the implications of the technology which they're trying to legislate or control or anything along those lines. So why not bring in experts to, to educate yourself, you know? And it, it's just, there's just this unwillingness at the highest levels of government to, to learn and to evolve and to adapt. And the result is, 
zero legislation or uninformed legislation that does very little to control the underlying problem. Like Facebook is a huge problem. It can be a valuable tool, but it also can be weaponized and used for these sort of nefarious purposes, like the spread of misinformation. I mean, there have been numerous studies that have shown that Facebook was a primary contributor to Russian disinformation in the 2016 election. There's been numerous studies that have shown that Facebook is one of the number one drivers of disinformation around the COVID pandemic. And that's because there's no legislation that's that's demanding that Facebook change or only put up put up accurate information. So it leaves it to Facebook to decide. And Facebook is is motivated by self-interest as the politicians who aren't, you know, implementing legislation are motivated by self-interest. So it's just like it all comes together and the the combination of these factors results in no change to the status quo. And the status quo is is pretty terrible right now in terms yeah. of um, in terms of the spread of misinformation, in terms of the misuse of technology. Um, it's I, I mean, the status quo is not where we want to be. We definitely want to adapt, but uh, there's just an unwillingness at all levels of government and in the private sector to adapt or to change anything because it it serves a lot of people in government, a lot of people in Congress. I mean, it it you know the, this you know Russian election interference, for example, was a huge reason why a number of these senators and congressmen were elected. It was a huge reason why President Trump was elected. And when you're, when you're benefiting from the system, when you're benefiting from foreign actors on a personal level, a lot of these individuals don't see the greater good. They only see that rugged individualism, that self-interest, that self-promotion, you know, and that's troublesome. But, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate. And yeah, leaving it, leaving it to the industries to self-regulate that's never really a good idea. I know that there has been some fact checkers put in place, for example, on Facebook and on Twitter, which which does help nudge people in the right direction, but there's still- Twitter um, seems to do a better still, job yeah. than a lot of other yeah. places, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's still more to be done too. Uh, and then, you know, talking about from a legislative standpoint that there are people who are elected to Congress benefit, benefiting from this. So why in the world will they vote against their own best interest essentially? Uh, well, you'd like to goal, think that <laughs> you'd like to think that their their sole purpose is, you know, agents of government should be to represent, you know, the people who put them in office, but um, not the case in in a lot of instances, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely not the case in uh, in a lot of instances. So hopefully we get better. Um, you know, keep pushing, right? <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. We'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what the future holds. But um, anyway, yeah, I wanted to, I, I'm really curious because, uh, you know, there has been a lot of talk about childhood vaccinations for COVID. So I think now would be a good time to address this. It's currently approved down to 12 years old. Is that correct? So mm -hmm. down to 12 years old. And have you seen a uptick or where exactly are we standing between like the 12 to 18 year old population as far as getting vaccinated? Is these individuals, or I should say under 18, where you know they are going to need their uh, parents' permission essentially to go and get the vaccine. So I was curious as to where, like from a percentage of the population we stand up for that uh, stand at for that particular population. Like, are we seeing that you know parents are allowing the children to get vaccinated, or is there a lot of hesitation there with that particular age group? Yeah, so 
things that we should probably go over as it relates to uh, kids and COVID. Um, so first off, we're really we're really suffering from you know initial messaging um, in terms of children in the COVID pandemic. So like the initial messaging was you know oh children you know they're not primary vehicles to spread the disease when they get the disease it's mild they're not being hospitalized and you know they're certainly not dying like for the first you know six months of the pandemic I don't think there was you know one childhood death in um, in the United States but. The fact of the matter is that's just not true and uh, anymore, any longer. It's not true any longer. It may have been true early on, but now with the emergence of the Delta variant, we have tens of thousands of children that are becoming sick, becoming ill with COVID. And we've had a number of deaths and tens of thousands of hospitalizations as well. And um, we've actually seen some pediatric ICUs become maxed out. Um, so just have no capacity for, for additional children coming in um, who are infected with COVID. Or, you know, like we spoke about earlier, when you have ICUs and critical care maxed out, that doesn't just affect people with COVID, it affects children, you know, without COVID who would be needing to come in for, you know, other sort of um, other sort of healthcare. So the the issue is now we've got a we've got a variant of COVID that can infect children, can hospitalize them, and can actually lead to death in children. We've also got the unfortunate consequence that these children are going to be going back to school right now, actually, probably this week or next week. And they're going to be interacting with, with other children. And now that we know that COVID can not only be spread by children, but it, the, the consequences can be significant in children. We're having this sort of perfect storm of, of conditions that are coming together to conspire to affect our young people in the United States. So, and that's not to mention the effects of, you know, teachers in schools and um, other, and like the parents and family members of children. So if you're going to school, you come, you can track COVID there, you go back to your house, you have the potential to spread it everywhere, you know, within your home. And obviously teachers are at risk and administrators are at risk and um, all of those sorts of things. So the best thing that we can do is, is vaccinate our, our young person. So as you mentioned, vaccination is currently approved for those 12 to 18, well, 12 and older in general. And now there's the push for authorization of the vaccination for those under 12. So Pfizer has been uh, running clinical trials um, for, for children under 12 years old and assessing the effects of, um, of vaccination on, uh, on those individuals. And the preliminary data show that, you know, there's no significant adverse effects and that the vaccines seem to be, you know, highly effective um, in those populations. So, the bottom line is the best thing that you can do for your kids and for your family is to get them vaccinated. At this point, so I, the, a lot of what I see, these are the main arguments that I see for not getting vaccinated by, by, by people in the, in the general public. One, it's only got emergency approval uh, by the FDA. And two, we don't know what the long-term consequences or we don't know what the effects are gonna be. And then three, there are significant adverse events um, related to getting the COVID vaccine. So dealing with them um, sort of in reverse order, I guess, um, or no, I guess in, in order. Um, 
I forgot what number one was at this point. Uh, but uh, oh, no, it was it's not it's not approved by the FBA. Uh, so we are expecting full FDA approval within the next month or so. Um, and that'll be for uh, vaccination in those um, 12 and older, most likely. Um, if not that, it'll be um, approved for those 18 and older. And then we'll probably go on you know, emergency authorization for those 12, 18. So FDA will approve it. And then the argument that we're seeing significant consequences or adverse events with the COVID vaccine, and we don't have enough you know, follow-up or information, both are patently untrue, patently false. So the COVID vaccine is probably the best studied vaccine, drug, medication of all time at this point. So we've, <laughs> so yes, we conducted clinical trials in limited populations, right? And that's what we use to generate the information on effectiveness and efficacy and vaccine safety. But since then, we've administered the vaccine in the United States. We've administered vaccines, at least a single dose, to 200 million people. Um, and then we've administered, I think it's, I think we've fully vaccinated almost 2 billion people around the world. And what we've done is we followed all of those individuals up. We've established vaccine monitoring systems in uh, the United States, CDC has VAERS, um, which is the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And um, you know, globally we have you know, similar systems. And basically what we've done is we've created the largest clinical trial of all time with almost 2 billion people enrolled in it. And we followed those up and we've monitored them for significant adverse events. And what we find, what we found is that back adverse events are exceedingly rare. So to compare this with, you know, other drugs or medications, like if a new drug for diabetes comes out, right? Um, it goes through a clinical trial process, it gets approved by the FDA, and then it begins getting administered to, to patients with diabetes. So what you're looking at there and the information that you're looking at there is basically all clinical trial data, and then it's administered in a limited number of diabetic patients. So you're going to have limited, you know, more limited amounts of follow-up, more limited amounts of safety data, and all of those sorts of things. But we have the largest in effect, cohort of individuals ever to be studied for adverse effects with the vaccination. And what we found is there, there aren't any really adverse effects. And sure, the follow-up period at this point has quote unquote only been a year, but what we've learned from all previous vaccinations that we've ever, you know, that we've ever been administered, that have ever been administered on large scales is that the majority, the vast, vast majority of adverse effects take place within the first six to eight weeks. And we are way past that at this point. And all of the data that continues to come in, all the data that becomes available and emerges shows that our mRNA vaccines and the J&J vaccine are incredibly safe, are incredibly effective, and are really to prevent you from, um, from becoming hospitalized, getting severe disease, or, or dying, ultimately. So, I mean, it, I don't know, I don't know any better way to, to you know, come out in favor of the vaccine than saying that you know, almost 25% of the entire world's population has been vaccinated at this point. We have an immense amount of data and all of those data are indicating that the vaccines are safe and effective. Yeah. And I, at this point, I also want to highlight too that 
there is no medical uh, intervention that that works um, that's currently available that is 100% effective or 100% safe. And people just need to understand that at the end of the day, it's a numbers game. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get it, get the efficacy or effectiveness as close to 100% and get the, uh, the adverse events as close to zero as you possibly can. Sorry, my dog's broken. Charlie, cut it out, cut it out. Sorry, saw somebody walk past the window, but yes, I mean, the point you're making is absolutely correct. I mean, there are always going to be limited instances of, you know, adverse events that, that are occurring, you know, with the result of the administration of any medical treatment or any medical intervention, not just with vaccinations. But what we can say is that those instances of severe adverse effects occur in such a, such a small portion of the population that it is almost at this point negligible. Um, and your risk is almost negligible um, as a result. Whereas, you know, your risk of, your risk of, and this shouldn't be like a comparison because it, it's like, it's an unfair, it's an unfair comparison, but your risk of getting COVID and suffering from severe consequences, affecting others, uh, potentially having family or friends get severe illness because of catching COVID from you, uh, your risk of hospitalization, your risk of death, far, far, far exceeds the risk of you having a significant side effect from, from getting the vaccine. But I mean, it goes beyond that. I mean, it's, it's, your, it's your duty from a, from a public health perspective or from like a communitarian perspective. It's, it's your duty to not just protect yourself, but protect all of those individuals around you. And that, you know, if we don't have this communitarian perspective, we're, we're going to fail. Like we can't, we can't have this, you know, rugged individualistic perspective anymore. Like we've got to realize that our actions have consequences and by not getting vaccinated, not only are we putting ourselves at risk, but we're putting all of the individuals that we come into contact with at risk. And not only that, I mean, you're you're contributing to the propagation of the of the pandemic like you're contributing to this pandemic stretching on and on and on and that's if you want to talk about the economic impacts the the mental health impacts on you know children who aren't able to go to school and are staying home and all those sorts of things all of these arguments that people make against lockdowns if you want to talk about that by not getting vaccinated you're you're propagating those issues you're 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 contributing to the to the ongoing um, the ongoing problems associated with the pandemic. The unfortunate thing is that the most pe most of the people who are making those arguments against lockdowns are also the people who are not getting vaccinated. They seem to go they seem to go hand in hand. But you've got to realize we've got to do one or the other. We've got to protect people. So whether that be through pharmaceutical interventions like vaccines or non pharmaceutical interventions like social distancing, mask mandates, uh, lockdowns, um, working from home, uh, schooling from home, all of those sorts of things. If we're not gonna go the pharmaceutical route, we're gonna have to go the non-pharmaceutical route. So, yeah. I, I mean, we've gotta, we've gotta protect people uh, at this you, point. You, you can't have it both ways. Like these, these, are, these are the, yeah, these are the options and we need to choose a route that we're gonna go down. Um, obviously the scientific community is strongly pushing the pharmaceutical intervention route because that makes the most sense. That's how we've combated infectious disease for 
you know, hundred years now over <laughs> so over hundred years, and it works. We know that it works, um, and it allows us to return to normal. But if people are choosing to not go the um, the pharmaceutical intervention route, then we, you know, we're going to need to choose other options because you can't let the healthcare system collapse. I mean, it's the same argument that we had at the beginning of the pandemic with the healthcare system. I mean, you start filling up the hospitals, uh, then just everything starts to unwind, and you get a situation where. You know, we saw a really severe situation in India at one point where their healthcare system was just crumbling. Um, so you can't allow that to happen. Yeah, but, absolutely. But, uh, you know, regarding, so vaccination, you know, with kids, the uh, herd immunity, what is, where does, where is uh, herd immunity uh, pinned down to at, the, at these points? I know, obviously, it's in a range. Um, I don't know if it's like 80%, 85%, somewhere around there of the community needs to be vaccinated to know kind of really get things under control um, yeah we um to be pretty amorphous these days and kind of moving around yeah i mean herd immunity or you know as we're trying to relabel well some people are trying to relabel it community immunity i really hate that term though it just <laughs> yeah um but uh i mean both are both terms are are terrible uh and are good for theoretical planning perspectives right so um Herd immunity or community immunity um, is good for, you know, us from a public health perspective, you know, planning out how many vaccines we need to make and we need to distribute to, you know, bring this pandemic, um, pandemic to a halt. Um, but from a practical standpoint, like it doesn't have as much of an impact, specifically in the case of COVID, because we are having these spillover infections, we are having these breakthrough infections, and we are trying to change that narrative from preventing infection to preventing hospitalization and to preventing death. So herd immunity, like I was saying, is, you know, could be, could need to be 80, 85, or 90%. So what we're seeing is that the Delta variant is just so incredibly infective. I mean, we're talking something that is, you know, really as infective as the, the chicken pox, which is one of the most efficient diseases that, that exists in terms of, in terms of spread. Um, so when you have something that, that, that's that transmissible, it's, um, it's, uh, it's very difficult to attain like the levels of quote unquote herd immunity that you'd need. And you also need to shift your perspective on what herd immunity is. So, I mean, when you take it at like the national level, for example, if we were to say, you know, we need to reach 80% at the national level, that's, that's probably very untrue um, because the places that the places, the communities, the states that are getting vaccinated in the highest proportions are very likely to be much higher above that threshold. While we have states that, you know, aren't, aren't, you know, reaching that level of, of uptake of vaccination. So, if, for example, in the Southeast where you see very low vaccination coverage, if we were to ever get to 80% nationally, it would probably be a result of other states, you know, getting vaccinated in higher proportions, but you'd still have those, into, you'd still have those state level, local level um, outbreaks or emergences of, you know, disease. So it's very difficult to pin down an exact number uh, in terms of what you need to reach, like for a level of herd immunity. But okay. what we can say is that the more people that get vaccinated, the, the better. Um, and the vaccination is really, really going to be the most effective way to, to, you know, get back to normal and stay and stay normal. And I also say that, you know, herd immunity is, um, 
is really good for planning purposes, but not necessarily programmatic purposes, is because we've probably gotten past the point where we can hope to eliminate COVID entirely um, from you know circulation in, in the population and like the United States or even or even globally or especially globally. Um, and that's because we didn't vaccinate as quickly as we needed to. Um, if we had reached you know high levels of vaccination initially, uh, we probably would have been able to stop COVID in its tracks. But at this point, COVID's probably going to be around for for quite a while. It's probably going to continue to spread in populations, uh, and we're probably going to have to continually um, be implementing mitigation measures. And hopefully, those are just pharmaceutical via you know boosters or adaptations via vaccines or something along those lines. But I, I would say, um, in, in my opinion, COVID is pro probably going to be circulating for, for quite some time um, and maybe perpetually at this point. Um, but hopefully we can, uh, you know, we can take steps to, to address the, the spread of the disease and get it, to, get it to the points where, you know, it's not going to be significantly impacting us. Um, but, you know, we're going to have to see. We're going to have to see how it goes. Uh, and if we can, you know, if we can reach out and we can administer vaccinations and immunizations to large swaths of the population, then maybe we can stop COVID. I mean, it's it's certainly you know within the realm of possibility. It just doesn't seem it doesn't seem likely uh, at this point, uh, especially because our our problem isn't with production. Um, at least in the United States, our problem is uptake. So we're having a difficult time getting people to actually get the vaccine. So we're you know. Over 50% at this point of people are, are fully vaccinated, and a lot of people do have single doses. But, you know, and maybe we can talk about this, but without, you know, widespread incentivization or mandates for, for vaccines, it's going to be really tough to boost those numbers up uh, uh, much higher. Because, like I said, it's not a it's not a availability issue. It's people have the opportunity to get the vaccine, but simply are not getting it at, at this point. You know, going back to your comment about uh, COVID being endemic at this point and the need to get higher vaccination rates. You know, we were talking about kids initially, and I think that's just even a, a bigger case now for uh, vaccinating, vaccinating uh, children. You know, if it's, you know, if it's approved for it and with Delta and who knows, I mean, with, with it circulating in the population, I, I mean, I hope that there aren't uh, more infectious and deadlier variants that come, um, come online. But with the, with the virus allowed to kind of propagate freely throughout society and not putting it, um, not, completing, uh, not completely getting rid of it, it is allowed to mutate and through process of natural selection, you know, something, might, uh, something more deadly or might come online. So I think that's just even a bigger case for you know, vaccinating young people um, that, that we need to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and mutations are inevitable at this point. And what we've seen is that a large number of these mutations are, you know, against us as opposed to for us. Like they're not jumping to becoming less infected, right? Which is something that you wouldn't expect to see in like the terms of like natural selection or anything like that. But I mean, there each new iteration, each new variant has become increasingly infectious and increasingly um, well, not necessarily severe. Delta, we've, we've seen become increasingly severe and deadly, but the other variants, we, we didn't see that so much. But they're also becoming um, more 
resistant to the vaccination. Um, so although vaccines are presenting, preventing hospitalizations and deaths, the effectiveness in terms of preventing infection seems to, seems to be decreasing. And I think the evidence has really bore that out. We don't know to what extent, but that's why we're you know, authorizing the use of boosters in the mRNA vaccines that I'm anticipating for, for J&J coming. Uh, coming shortly to to boost up that um, that effectiveness of preventing infection, even though that infection may be you know mild or asymptomatic. Yeah. So, do you know when exactly the boosters will come online? Because yeah, that's I, I know that I'm going to have to get that as well. I, you know, I, everyone at this point. I know originally uh, Pfizer was the only the only one who came forward and said that you know, hey, it looks like our vaccines are not as effective against Delta. Um, so we're, you know, we're doing research, we're looking into a booster, and then we're going to recommend a booster. Uh, but now, like you said, it's, it's both so, RNA vaccines, so the Moderna, the Pfizer, and then even uh, the Johnson & Johnson will need a booster as well. So um, here's really what you need to know about the, the booster shots. So um, first off, just want to reiterate, because I want to make this abundantly clear, just two doses of vaccine is going to protect you nearly 100% against hospitalization and nearly 100% against death. So if you're fully vaccinated and you have two doses, you're still going to enjoy all of that protection. Now, the administration of boosters in the population is something that we're doing to jump ahead of any potential um, of any potential new variants emerging, any potential, you know, new severe diseases, like all of those things, and potentially, you know, jumping ahead of any sort of waning immunity. So the plan right now is to stay a step ahead of the virus, which is great because it's not something that, you know, we've had, we've been able to do up to this point, right? I mean, we've always been behind and we've, you know, we haven't been able to have that opportunity to take preventive action against the, uh, against the virus. So that's really why boosters are being administered. It's not because we're anticipating that, you know, there's going to be a sudden surge of hospitalizations and vaccinated people. That's, that's just not the case. So you're still safe if you've got the two doses of the mRNA. You're still safe if you have the one dose of J&J. &J. So again, just trying to stay ahead of the virus. And now in terms of distribution, what's being recommended now is that all people who are immunocompromised and people who fit in that high-risk elderly group get a third dose of vaccine right now. The, the second part of it is that the general population who doesn't have any of those associated risk factors isn't immunocompromised, get a third dose of the mRNA vaccine, so that's Moderna and Pfizer, eight months after their second dose. So if you got your second dose in March and mid-November you go in and, or in mid-March you go in in mid-November and you get, uh, you get your, your third shot or your booster. So these boosters are not any different at this point from the initial vaccine um, that, um, that you received. So you don't need to worry about anything in terms of, you know, oh, it's a new vaccine. I don't know, you know, what the effects are gonna be or anything along those lines. So getting a same dose of the same vaccine eight months after your second shot. Now, um, we don't have 
currently we don't have enough vaccine to, to administer a third dose to everybody who's had Pfizer and Moderna, but there aren't expected to be any sort of supply chain shortages um, because the United States has a deal to get an additional, I think it's 400 million doses over the next six months or so. So should not have any problem with, uh, with administration. The, the thing is, and the problem with this, with this tactic is that, is that it's really diminishing the health equity of distribution of vaccine around the world. So if we're giving third doses to people in the United States, that's a first dose or a second dose that we're not giving to somebody around the world. So yeah, we've administered, you know, uh, I think it's like 1.85 or 1.87 billion doses uh, globally, but, um, or we vaccinated that amount of people, but there's still a substantial amount of people that don't have access to the vaccine and aren't anticipated to have access to the vaccine or any of the vaccines for an extended period of time. So from a health equity standpoint, that's problematic. The United States could very easily be donating these vaccines um, to, to people who are, who are living abroad um, or living in other countries. So that's a problem. And also from this pandemic has, has global implications. So as new, new variants are emerging or as community transmission continues to be widespread, we're going to have new variants emerging. So, so long as we have significant parts of the population globally that aren't vaccinated, we're going to have, continue to have problems with COVID. We're going to continue to have new variants emerge, and that's going to impact all of us globally. So the WHO is actually criticizing countries who are offering booster shots because it's taking a very localized or nationalized perspective as opposed to this global perspective. So while it may benefit all of us individually um, in terms of immediacy of benefits, long-term, it's probably, probably a mistake um, to not be vaccinating the unvaccinated at this point, because we're still enjoying all of that protection against hospitalization. We're enjoying all that protection against severe disease and death. So I just... Uh, yeah, I don't know. That that's the argument against it, I suppose. Okay. But uh, yeah. So but maybe uh, if you you know for the immunocompromised or the people who potentially could become severely ill, uh, it makes sense. But uh, maybe for the you know the average person who is very healthy, um, you know, getting that give, getting that third booster eight months after you finished your second uh, your second dose. Maybe maybe you don't necessarily need to get that. I guess for from a from a global health standpoint. Yeah, from a global health standpoint. Yeah, I mean, in and the only reason why from a global health perspective is because we still don't have the supply, right? If we have the supply and everybody had access to vaccines, then yeah, third doses a great idea because I agree with all those points. Like we should be getting ahead of the pandemic. We, we definitely should be implementing or administering boosters because there has been evidence to show that immunity does wane over time. So from, from a global perspective, it may not, it, well, it, not it may not, it definitely doesn't make sense to administer a third dose before some people have been, been or have received their, their first dose um, 
you know, much less their second dose. So from a global perspective and from a global health perspective, it certainly makes a whole lot more sense to vaccinate as many people as possible as opposed to administering a third dose. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get a third dose. So from, you know, an a perspective of individual health, it's safe to get a third dose. A third dose is going to increase your antibodies um, against, against COVID and is going to improve your, your long-term health outcomes. So if you're offered a third dose, you certainly should, should get one. So anybody who's, who's listening, like don't uh, take a, a principled stand against, uh, <laughs> against getting a third dose because you, you absolutely still should um, if, it, if it's offered to you. These are just things that are happening above our heads, right? I mean, these are just you know policies that are being implemented by the United States government and by the global community. And um, you know, it's ultimately been determined that here um, a third dose is gonna be an option. So if it's an option for you, absolutely take it. Um, those vaccines are going to waste in, um, you know, in freezers and, and whatnot if they're, if they're not being administered. So yeah, if you have the option, take it. And again, it's worth noting that these are only recommendations for the mRNA vaccine. So if you've got Pfizer and Moderna, um, eight months after your second dose, you're going to be eligible for a third dose. Um, J&J right now uh, does not have a recommendation for a booster dose. That has nothing to do intrinsically with the J&J vaccine. It's just that the J&J vaccine was, you know, received a emergency approval uh, significantly later than Pfizer and Moderna and distribution started um, significantly later as well. So it's just lagging behind in terms of, um, in terms of the evidence that we have available um, that, you know, the, the evidence that we have available for J&J and in the population and the date, not even evidence, the data that we have available. Uh, so we're, we're going to be looking for more data before uh, those vaccine recommendations change. So just, you know, stay apprised of the situation if you have J&J, and then um, uh, you're, you're probably going to get some news fairly soon on uh, the, the booster situation for, for J&J. Okay. Well, I mean, we still have a few months too, so, you know, something, something may change. Uh, so, but like you said, uh, just keep an eye out. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, still like <laughs> reiterating, this is to get ahead of the virus. This isn't saying that now you need these boosters to, you know, pr protect yourself from, you know, from hospitalization and from death and all of those sorts of things. So you really, you know, you're still safe. Like this should not be something to be taken as, this isn't like alarmist news. This isn't, you know, um, something that needs to, you know, happen right away. It's, it's really to get a jump on, on the virus. So don't be alarmed that you need to have a booster. Don't be, don't be significantly worried, but when it becomes available, yes, I, I would recommend that, you know, everybody receive that, that third dose. All right. Sounds good. Uh, you know, uh, one thing I, I did want to talk to you about is the, you know, the scientific community changing their stance. So we've seen that quite frequently throughout the pandemic where, you know, in the beginning there wasn't the mask rec uh, recommendation and then there was the mask recommendation um, with the uptake of the COVID vaccine, then we could you know, stop wearing masks again. We didn't have to worry about social distancing too much. Uh, we could start having larger gatherings. 
And now in some parts of the country, the recommendation from the CDC is once again, to start wearing masks. Uh, masks are recommended in schools because younger kids, as we just discussed, are have higher, um, have, uh, excuse me, lower vaccination rates because it just wasn't recommended for them. Uh, because with the original strain of the virus, there was really no, uh, no concern. But now with the Delta variant, we are seeing higher infections or higher infection rates within uh, the uh, within kids or the younger population. So, you know, this isn't this isn't necessarily a weakness of science, but yet it's constantly used against science, which I find infuriating. And I'm sure that you're familiar with the pejorative flip flop Fauci at this point. No, the, I, this isn't a failure of science, and if anything, that this this is a huge success story, um, and that's because science. Science is constantly evolving with new data, right? So as new data become available, as new evidence becomes available, science, you know, by its very nature has to, has to adapt and should adapt. And the, the thing is, you know, when, we, when, we, when the pandemic started, um, we were dealing with a completely novel strain of coronavirus. And when we say novel, we mean previously unheard of, undiscovered, something that's completely, completely new, a completely new evolution of um, a virus. So we were basing all of our assumptions on, you know, things that we, things that we thought or perceived to be similar at the time, which were, you know, the other SARS viruses um, and MERS and uh, the flu. So we had to base our assumptions on, on that. And that and as we began genomic sequencing, as we were able to study the virus in populations, um, and as more data became available, we had to change our perspectives and we had to change our recommendations. And um, like I said, that's a necessary function of science. It's the scientific process, but also um, it's, it's how we should be informing public health practice and the implementation of policy. You don't want to have a single uniform policy across, you know, the country or across the, the globe, right? You want to adapt it based on, you know, individual situations or the situation within states and countries. So, uh, and, and, that's, and that's really, you know, that's really what we've been doing and what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to base recommendations um, in terms of lockdowns, mass mandates, any sort of pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical interventions you know, based on the evidence that we have at the time. And like I said, things are constantly evolving. Like uh, we, for example, uh, with the emergence of the Delta variant, um, when the Delta variant emerged and, you know, eventually became really the dominant strain of COVID across the, across the globe, we had to significantly alter our recommendations uh, because our knowledge base changed and the situation changed. Delta is more infective, it's more severe, it's more deadly. And as a result, we really have to take extreme steps to, to stop its transmission because widespread community transmission is going to lead to increased hospitalizations. Hospitals are going to become overwhelmed, um, which is going to lead to excess mortality. And then, you know, if situations continue uh, or if the situation continues to evolve and become become um, become like that, like uh, maxed out hospitalizations, we're going to have to implement significant uh, mitigation measures like lockdowns, which is something that we don't want to do. So uh, again, science is, 
science that one the science is constantly evolving two the situation is constantly evolving and and three both of those things the science and the situations should and should um should result in changes to our policy so to call you know fauci flip flop fauci is is absolutely absurd or to say the scientific community isn't um isn't reliable because they continually change their recommendations is is it's absolutely ridiculous because changing of recommendations, changing of guidance um, is, is absolutely essential to this, to controlling this pandemic. Um, and again, I think that that just goes to, to the underlying problem of people think that changing your opinion is somehow weak, but that's, that's really not the case. Like it's a great show of strength if you can change your opinion um, based on available data. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, I wonder how much better we would be right now from um, you know from a community health standpoint in this pandemic, if the kind of underlying ethos within American culture was that you know change is good type of thing. That if you are presented with new credible information and it conflicts with your existing information, but you kind of you know you you then admit that you are wrong. Uh, and then kind of upgrade your worldview, uh, knowing that you're better for it. Like if we had learned that in school or something like that, how much better we would have be as a society right now uh, from, you know, not only a pandemic standpoint, I suppose, but, you know, since we're talking about that, but just in general with a number of issues. <laughs> it's an yeah, interesting I'm, thought experiment. Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly a detrimental perspective to have. Um, and uh, I mean, I... I don't know how it's something that you know you teach or you address um, in schools, but the prevailing perspective in the United States is is very anti-intellectual um, at this point. It's very you know anti-learning, anti-established education, anti-college, um, and uh, really anti-science. And that and that seems to be those seems to be seem to be perspectives that are just shared by a wide swath of the of the population. And I think it's because at, at this point that I think that I think that you know a one people people feel like they need to be experts on everything, so they resist you know actual actual experts who you know have opinions that conflict with their own. And I think that um, yeah, we, it, it's 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 just a, it's just a huge problem i mean it's, intelligence used to be something that was aspired to like not looked down on or derided uh, but it definitely seems to be the situation in in the us uh, right now and i mean that would be an interesting you know sociological or psychological experiment but uh, yeah it definitely seems seems to be very prevalent in the united states to to our detriment but um yeah i i mean uh, i I don't know. I think that, you know, maybe on with a greater focus on critical thinking, like what, you know, this site is dedicated to, maybe a greater focus on critical thinking would be a first uh, first step forward and, you know, public education. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Pat, um, yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to address real quick? I mean, otherwise, I think this is a good, uh, good place to, to wrap things up for this episode. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe just to, to reemphasize, um, to, to everybody, you know, in terms of the, in terms of, you know, COVID, the best thing that you can do to protect yourself, protect the ones you love, um, friends, family, everybody, the best thing that you can do is, is get vaccinated. Um, and 
as you know recommendations continue to emerge from the CDC, the best thing that you can do is is to to follow those recommendations. Um, and hopefully, you know, if we if we work together as a as you know people who are living in the United States, people you know of the same community, hopefully we can you know bring this pandemic to to a halt. All right, fantastic. I couldn't agree more. Uh, anyway, folks, I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us for this episode of uh, Thinking Critically. Always appreciate your feedback. You know, please share. Go ahead, uh, hit that like button. Send us your thoughts and stay tuned for more great content moving forward. Take care.